idea aesthetic works it recovers the reticular structure that stretched across the whole of the universe before the dissociation of magical thought while technical thought is made up of schemas a figural element without ground reality and religious thought is made up of ground qualities and forces without figural structures aesthetic thought combines figural structures and ground qualities instead of representing elementary functions like technical thought or the functions of totality like religious thought it holds elements and totality, as well as figure and ground, by way of analogical relation. The aesthetic reticulation of the world is a network of analogies. So this, um, uh, so here we see the the role of aesthetic thought as the the reunification of uh, what was separated out into the technical and the religious um, modes of existence. So. There's a, a sort of recovery of that uh, unity that existed at the level of the magical mode of existence. Um, and so the aesthetic uh, world or the aesthetic mode of existence has a similar structure, um, which he describes as reticulation. So it's made up of um, uh, a network of uh, uh, a network structure uh, in the same way that magical thought uh, was structured in the, in the network of uh, key points. Um, but so this is a network not of key points, but of works. Um, so uh, a work of art, um, through its perfection, points beyond itself towards other works of art. Um, and that, and the, these works of art form a network. Uh, so that's, this, again, a sort of building on what we saw last time. Um, uh, just that, that function of um, aesthetic thought as reunifying what was split out of magical thought. Okay, so it looks like we're recording, uh, so that's good. Um, yeah, um, so we'll miss the first little bit uh, of today, but that's fine. Um, um, yeah, so have any other comments on those first couple paragraphs that we uh, we just read? This analogy business seems to be important um, for the next two or three paragraphs as well. Yeah, I guess we'll see that as we go ahead. But um, in general, the term analogy is something that he um, puts a lot of uh, emphasis on. Um, like in, in the other, in the individuation book, he, um, he argues that what he describes as transductive thought um, is is the sort of formalization of analogical reasoning or it's what it's what is valid about analogical reasoning so transductive thinking is a thinking that um, um, that operates um, by the progressive structuring of uh, a field um, so again it's always this analogy of the crystal um, forming in a super saturated solution um, so the the crystal forms at the at the surface of the germ, uh, and then it, it uh, around the surface of the the crystal, there's a layers of crystallization uh, progressively throughout the um, the solution, um, and so he he uses this as an image for um, a mode of thinking, this transductive thinking, and he characterizes that as being um, what is valid in analogical thought. So. Um, Presumably, this uh, network of analogies that he describes here um, has to do with a, a similar form of transductive uh, thinking and transductive mode of existence. Mm. 
So maybe we can go on to the next paragraph uh, and we'll see some more about this network of analogies. Someone else would like to read? Sure, I can go. Uh, the aesthetic work is, in fact, linked not only to the world and to man as a unique intermediate reality, it is also linked to other works without conflating itself with them, without being in a material continuity with them and keeping its own identity. The aesthetic universe is characterized by the possibility of passage from one work to another according to an essential analogical relation. Analogy is the foundation for the possibility of going from one term to another without a negation of the term by the succeeding one. It has been defined by de Solage as an identity of relations, rapport, in order to distinguish it from resemblance, which in general would merely be a partial relation of identity. Complete analogy is in fact more than an identity of internal relations characterizing two realities. It is this identity of figural structures, but it is also an identity of the grounds of these two realities. On an even deeper level, it is even the identity of modes according to which, within the two beings, there is exchange and communication between the figural structure and the ground of reality. It is the identity of the coupling of figure and ground in two realities. Thus, there is no true and complete analogy in the domain of purely technical thought, nor in that of purely religious thought. Analogy applies to what one could call the fundamental operation of existence of beings. Uh, to that, there is in them a coming into being that develops them by making figure and ground emerge. Aesthetics grasps the manner in which beings appear and manifest themselves, i.e. by splitting into figure and ground, technical thought grasps only the figural structures of beings, which it identifies with its schemas. Religious thought grasps only the ground schemas of the reality of these beings, according to which they are pure or impure, sacred or profane, saintly or sullied. This is why religious thought creates homogeneous categories and classes, like the pure and the impure, recognizing beings through inclusion within these classes or through exclusion from these classes. Technical thought deconstructs and reconstructs the functioning of beings, elucidating their figural structures. Technical thought operates, religious thought judges. Aesthetic thought operates and judges at the same time, constructing structures and grasping the ground qualities of reality in a related and complementary way in the unity of each being. It recognizes unity at the level of the definite being, of the object of knowledge and the object of operation, rather than remaining, like technical thought, always below the level of unity, or like religious thought, always above this level. I feel like I could reread this passage for the rest of the day to try and figure it out. Yeah, there's a lot in here. Um, maybe we can go through it sort of uh, in order, um, like through the, the paragraph, the long paragraph, and uh, try to figure things out. So the first bit um, about how the aesthetic work is uh, it's linked to other works. Um, this is um, building on what, uh, what we saw in the last couple paragraphs before this about the um, aesthetic network uh, in the aesthetic universe being structured as a network. So all of the different aesthetic works uh, uh, have reference to each other. They point towards each other. Um, and that's what makes up the, the aesthetic universe, um, is that, that network, um, um, the network of, uh, aesthetic works. 
and uh, the sort of structuring relationship in that network is uh, what he described here as analogy. Um, and then, so he goes on to characterize analogy um, in more detail. And then analogy, so he, he argues that analogy in the more sort of fundamental sense that he wants to use it here, it, ha it has to do with not just the figural aspects of a, a being uh, and not just the ground aspects, but with uh, the relationship between uh, the figure and ground in two different beings. So it's a uh, analogy here is a relationship between relationships. So within each being, there's a relationship between figure and ground aspects. And then the analogical relationship is between two such beings and um, between the relationship between figure and ground in one being and the relationship between figure and ground in an, another being. So there's a, a, um, a, a correspondence of structure between one being and another being. Um, so in this case, one work of art and another work of art, um, they have this correspondence of structure in terms of the way that the ground and the figure are related to each other. And it's noteworthy here also that he, he distinguishes analogy from uh, resemblance. So a resemblance is just a, a sort of partial identity. Um, so um, it's like uh, sharing certain properties and, and not others, uh, or sharing properties to a certain degree, um, but not completely. Um, and so that's not what he has in mind here. So analogy is a structural um, correlation rather than um, uh, a partial identity, which is what resemblance would be. And then, so in the, the next bit of the paragraph, um, so because analogy has to do with both the figure and the ground aspect of a, of a being or of a pair of beings, um, um, because of that, it means that there's no such thing as analogy, properly speaking, um, purely in a realm of the technical or in the realm of the religious, because the technical sphere has to do only with the figural side of beings, um, with these, these schemas, as he describes them, um, so that they, they grasp the figural side of a being. Uh, and then the religious um, mode of existence or, or mode of thought uh, grasps only the, the ground side of being. So um, either one of them uh, is incapable of uh, producing an analogy in the proper sense, in the, the complete sense that he's using it here. Um, so that means that only at the level of aesthetics can you have um, analogy, properly speaking, because aesthetics, aesthetics grasp both the figure and the ground. Mm, it seems to me to make a connection mm, with the other work, uh, individuation book. Uh, analogy and aesthetics seem to have some kind of privileged relation to what he calls pre-individual there, maybe? Yeah, I think the we can probably map onto the pre-individual, um, the ground function here. Um, uh, to at least to some extent. Um, 
so the 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 ground aspect of a being and the uh the pre-individual um uh, uh, milieu out of which the the individuated being arises um, would be sort of correlated concepts, um, and then so the aesthetic um, the aesthetic mode of existence um, what distinguishes it from the purely technical is the fact that it, it precisely grasps that um, the arising of the figures from the ground uh, and or which would correspond to the process of individuation out of the pre individual. Um, so yeah, in that sense, yes, the uh, the aesthetic does grasp um, the uh, the pre-individuated, um, whereas whereas the technical mode of existence only grasps what is already individuated. And so uh, the next little bit in this paragraph um, is has to do with the uh, what you can call the I guess the cognitive operations or the the modes of thought that are characteristic of uh, the technical or the technical sphere and the uh, the religious sphere. So the technical sphere has schemas, um, which which uh, corresponds to the figural aspect of of beings. Um, and uh, and it operates it, so it, technical uh, technical thought operates using schemas, whereas the religious sphere um, has to do with judgments, um, and uh, it doesn't have um, doesn't have schemas. It has uh, categories and classes, so um, it judges something to be pure or impure or sacred or sullied, um, as he puts it here, um, or sorry, sacred or profane, saintly or sullied. Um, so, uh, yeah, technical thought operates using schemas and religious thought judges using categories. Um, those are the, the, the sets of concepts that correspond in the sphere of cognitive operations or con cognitive processes to each of those categories. Um, and then so uh, um, aesthetic thinking um, both operates and judges at the same time. Um, so it, it does both... Um, both of the things that um, that the technical and the religious modes of thought already do. Uh, while reading this passage, uh, I also thought about uh, one particular passage in Merleau-Ponty, Visible and Invisible, uh, because I think it has a similar quality of uh, going to the bottom of the, in the ontological sense and associating uh, aesthetics with a sort of ontological excess. Uh, well, he says, Merleau-Ponty, in that passage, uh, I quote, being is what requires creation of us for us to experience it. So I I think uh, in Simondon's passage it would be uh, the equivalent of something like uh, aesthetics uh, linking to a coming into being uh, mm -hmm. or the or the thing out of figure and ground anyway something like that. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and uh, yeah, Merlin Ponty is a, a sort of a source, um, like uh, Simon Don studied with him. Um, and uh, um, I think there are relations between their thought, but, um, you know, as, as usual, Simon Don doesn't cite his sources very much. So it's hard to, uh, hard to know for sure in any particular place, whether he's thinking of something from uh, Merlin Ponty. Um, but uh yeah, I think that that expresses the the, the passage you cited. You cited with, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, the passage you cited expresses a similar thought. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so the the coming into being of uh, an entity here is is understood as the the formation of the figural out of the ground, um, and that relation that uh, operation from the ground to the figural. Um, is what he describes as the fundamental operation of existence. Can I ask a question and kind of uh, uh, in relation to that last statement? Um, and I apologize about the, the beep. That it seems that's the technical constraint um, uh, that you alluded to uh, in the passage there that. Um, the uh, the technical kind of um, has a, has a way of expecting the the end user or the or the human interacting with the technical to be constrained a certain way. So that's what I sort of picked up on, and I can't remember exactly where in the passage or how Simon Don worded it. But I have a question, though, uh, going back to the notion of the interplay, the interaction between um, the uh, the technical and religious uh, in the aesthetic experience, that the two are involved. Um, and as you were reading that, I was thinking, and my question is, do you think that, that it is the um, the technical precursor uh, must reveal itself prior to uh, the religious coming into formation uh, as part of the figure. Uh, since they're both at play in the aesthetic experience, um, I guess my basic question is, in order to have the aesthetic experienced, and the with the involvement of this idea of the schema, does the technical kind of come before um, the religious cognition or the religious processes? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, you have to mute uh, when you're not talking so that we don't get that echo, um, unfortunately. Um, but um yeah so i think it's a, a good question um so um i'm not sure if you've read other parts of the book but um what we saw a few weeks ago um was um that arising of the technical and the religious um mode of existence as um uh, so simon describes it as a split so we start with um the sort of basic form of uh of exist of human existence is a, a magical relationship with the world so it's um 
it precedes the split into figure and ground or into subject and object. Um, and so the magical universe is structured um, by these key points um, uh, in space and time. So it can be like a, a mountain peak or a certain festival um, that occurs at a certain time of year or something like that. Um, and then this magical mode of existence splits into the technical and the religious. Um, and so, then, so the, the technical mode of existence um, um, uh, constitutes the figural aspect of uh, the magical mode of existence. And then the religious mode of existence constitutes the ground aspect of the um, magical mode of existence. So there's a split of, uh, into figure and ground or into technical and religious. So they, they both arise at the same time. Um, um, so the, the technical and the religious arise um, together or uh, out of that same split. Um, yeah, so so there's no uh, priority in terms of, uh, of the sort of genetic process that he's outlining um, in, in this uh, anthropology uh, in this part of the book. Um, so the technical and the religious are um, uh, have the same, they, they appear at the same level of the genesis. Um, if you look in the chat, uh, if you scroll up a little bit, you should see um, there's a diagram of the of the process of the the split, um, the different splits and then reunifications that constitute his uh, his genetic anthropology. Um, uh, yeah, and then so you'll see on that diagram that uh, the technical and the religious are at the same level, um, and then the aesthetic is uh, is the following level, which is a reunification of that split. Great. I will uh, review that diagram. I guess one of the questions that I have, but I, I, I'll have to, you know, go back to the earlier readings, do more of the reading, is um, whether the magical experience, the magical mode of existence is like a first stage um, before one can transcend it. Is that like a very primordial state of existence? Yeah, that's that's. Um, I think that's right. Um, yeah, the magical mode of existence is the um, the sort of uh, he describes it as a primitive unity um, or the yeah a primordial mode of existence. Um, so this is the first stage um, in this uh, genetic anthropology that he outlines um so it's a an anthropology um so it's a characterization of what it is to to be a human being um but it it's um it's um it lays out different modes of existence through this genesis um through which the different modes of existence come into being uh and then so the magical mode of existence is the the fundamental um or primordial unity um and then uh, it's out of that uh, fundamental unity that um, other modes of existence are split out um, and then uh, and then reunified. Uh, so that's the sort of big picture of what he's doing in this third part of the book.
I was just trying to repost the uh, the image there. Um, uh, I wasn't able to uh, to copy it, but some, maybe someone else could uh, could just scroll up in the chat and then repost the image of the uh, the schema. Oh uh, yeah, I, I guess I could retry that, or somebody else. But it's uh, I think I saw it. It's posted by Hera. Is that correct? The sort of diagrammatic slide. Is that the one? Is that the one? Is that the one? Yeah, there's there's a better um, Hera posted it, and then uh, someone else um, posted a better one, which Leif Mason just reposted um, at the bottom there. So it should be the the latest um, message in the chat uh, if you can see that. Um, yeah, so um, we start with the uh, the magical mode of existence, and then it splits into religion and techniques. Um, and then aesthetic thought is the reunification of religion and techniques, um, uh, a secondary reunification. Um, so it's it's sort of recapturing that magical unity, but um, at a higher level with a, you know, a different form of, or, or a increased um, structuring. Um, so that's where we're at right now. So some of the other parts we haven't seen yet, some of the other um, modes of existence that are listed on there, um, we'll, we'll get to them as we continue with the, uh, um, the process of genesis throughout this part of the book. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph, um, if someone else would like to read. So we're, we're at the paragraph, it is due to the fact. I can read, uh, wh where, um, which paragraph are we on? It, it is due to the fact. Is there a number there? I see like 250, 251. Uh, it's uh, just it's following two sixty two along the side. Two along the side. Okay. One second. Um, okay. It is due to the fact that it respects the unity of of definite beings. That aesthetic thought has analogy as its fundamental structure. Technical thought fragments and pluralizes beings because it privileges figural characteristics. Religious thought incorporates them into a totality in which they are qualitatively and dynamically absorbed, thus becoming less than unity. In order to grasp beings at their level of unity and to grasp them, them as multiple, without annihilating the unity of each through division or incorporation, each being must be operated and judged as a complete universe without excluding other universes. The, consti the constitutive relation of the beings coming into being, that which distinguishes and reunites figure and ground, must be able to transpose itself from one unity of being to another unity of being. Aesthetic thought grasps being as individuated and the world as a network of beings in a relation of analogy. Thus, aesthetic thought isn't simply a remnant 
souvenir of magical thought. It is what maintains the unity of thoughts coming into being as it splits into techni techniques and religions, because it is what continues to grasp a being in its unity, whereas technical thought grasps, grasps the being below the level of its unity and religious thought above it. Should I continue to the next paragraph? Okay. Yeah, so we can yeah we can stop there and um, go over what we just read, um, and then we'll go to the next paragraph, which is a long one. Uh, we'll do that afterwards. Um, so this we see here again um, something that we didn't discuss, but it was in the previous paragraph is this relation to the unity of being. So um, the technical mode of existence um, is um, let's see, make sure I get this right. Um, technical thought grasps the being below the level of its unity, so it decomposes um, a being into different schemas of operation, um, whereas the religious mode of existence or religious thought grasps a being from above the level of unity. So um, religion um, it always has to do with totality or um, uh, yeah, a totality in which various beings are inserted. Um, and so it's above the level of unity, whereas um, the aesthetic uh, mode, mode of thought grasps a being uh, at the level of the unity. Um, so it's, um, uh, it's, it grasps an individuated being um, as a, a, a process of individuation um, at, and at that level of the individuated uh, unity. And then, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just a quick question. Uh, what to make of uh, that statement towards the end there where he says, aesthetic thought grasps beings as individuated and the world as a network of beings in a relation of analogy. Yeah, so um, the, the idea here is that um, each each being um, understood in aesthetic thought, so each work of art or um, other being that is treated as having aesthetic value, it uh, is grasped at the level of unity, um, as I was the, just describing. Um, so it's as opposed to um, um, as opposed to the technical thought, which grasps it below the level of unity, or um, religious thought that grasps it above the level of unity. Um, so each individual being is, is grasped at that level of unity. Uh, and then each of those beings has that relation of analogy to other, um, to other beings, other works of art. Um, uh, and they form a network through that relationship of analogy. Um, and so the, the aesthetic universe uh, or the universe of the aesthetic mode of being uh, is, is structured uh, in the form of a network of analogical relationships. Okay, so the problem I have with the use there of analogy is that uh, although I'm in agreement with, like, let's say, um, the notion of the relations of, let's say, these objects of art 
Uh, I'm thinking, for example, the dialogue is another metaphor. It seems that analogy here is um, a concept that he builds out of significance, but I'm not sure it really encapsulates well this relation because um, the relation between buildings, for example, architects or um, artists who are situated in such a way um, that forces them to uh, kind of carry on with a unspoken dialogue amongst other artists that uh, they are in community with, whether they're actually uh, have relations with those other artists or um, have been um, in contact with their works. I think that these relations are more uh, kind of semiotic or maybe even dialogical, like there's a, um, and so it seems that uh, Simandon is referring to those types of relations as analogy. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I think I get what you're saying about understanding the relationship between um, different artists as a dialogical relationship or as something that has a linguistic structure, which is, um, um, uh, yeah, a, a structure um, through, a, yeah, semiotic or linguistic terms. Um, uh, I think the reason why Simon Don would not want to um, have that type of relationship um, be the, the sort of structuring relationship of the aesthetic universe is that um, that sort of presupposes um, the the subject the um, or or not not mean the subject but the uh, the artist as a um, a being that uh, you know is capable of communication and you know the use of signs and so on. Um, so that would be a relationship between artists um, as as you know people that have um, uh, you know properties uh, or, or capabilities of using signs and using language. Um, but what he wants to look at is not the relationship between artists, but the relationship between works of art. Um, and so that relationship is this structural relationship of analogy, um, which uh, is um, more fundamental than uh, the, the relationship between artists through um, signs and through language. Uh, so this is what underlies that, um, or part of what underlies that capacity. So um, in order to... In order to okay. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I just, I mean, that's, that's something to contemplate because, you know, I don't discount the idea that they're, there may be a um, uh, the other processes at work, but I just feel like, again, isn't there something that infuses the artworks um, and makes it difficult for them to really be completely um, singular? I mean, what actually causes some of the individuation is a kind of re, uh, recomposition, isn't there some degree of influence from the network of uh, the individuals producing the art? Just further to what Nan was saying, I think that, that might also bring us back into the universe of resemblance. So like when you start to appeal to discourse between people and dialogue and, and, and a kind of uh, linguistic semiotics that you are 
you're, you're kind of premising the analogy on resemblance, which is something that he's trying to get away from. I mean, I, that's what's coming out of, that's what I'm hearing coming out of this dialogue between the two of you. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. Um, and I think also um, one reason why we might not want to understand the structure of the aesthetic universe um, on the terms of dialogue or, or communication or something like that is that we can appreciate an aesthetic work even if we have no idea who produced it. So um, what I'm thinking of is, for example, um, cave paintings. Uh, you know, there are, there are cave paintings that are 30,000 years old uh, in different parts of the world, um, and you can still appreciate the the beauty um, and the aesthetic properties of these paintings, even though we have no idea. You know, the person who who made those paintings, of course, um, you know, didn't sign their name, or or you know, they're not sort of recorded in history because there was no history um, in, in recorded sense at that time. Uh, but we can still appreciate the aesthetic value of those works um, despite their anonymity, um, and we can still um, there's still you can still make connections between those works and other works um, in structural terms, uh, you know, in terms of uh, how the figure is related to the ground um, and how different forms are 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 um, related to each other and so on. Um, you can still make those structural um, analogical um, connections with other works of art, um, even though we have no idea who produced those works. So. Um, I would say that I think what Simon Doe is getting at here is that the that um, analogical or structural relationship between works is more fundamental than the the dialogical relationship between artists. I should also say, though, we don't need to, of course, <clears throat> we don't need to um, accept everything that Simon Dole says, of course. We're, like, we're, we're trying here to understand the work, um, the, the text in front of us, and, uh, um, uh, you know, understand his, his thought in its own terms. Um, we can, of course, disagree with, um, with something that he says. So, you know, it's possible that maybe um, you can make an argument that the dialogical relationship is more fundamental than the um, the analogical relationship. Um, that would be um, uh, you know an interesting argument to make, um, but it would be something uh, sort of going beyond the text. Um, um, so it would be uh, you know setting yourself in opposition to the text that we're reading. Um, but um, yeah, that would be uh, another another enterprise of thought. Very diplomatic. Okay, so I think we can go on to the, the next paragraph, which is um, long. It looks like it's like two pages long, um, but uh, I can read this one. Um, the aesthetic work is not a complete and absolute work. It is that which instructs as to how to move towards a complete work, which must be in the world and a part of the world as if it really belonged to the world and not simply as a statue in a garden. While statues are beautiful in and of themselves, they do not make a house or a garden beautiful. A house and a garden are beautiful in their own right. It is by virtue of the garden that the statue can appear as beautiful, not the garden by virtue of the statue. It is with respect to the entire life of a man that an object can be beautiful. Furthermore, it is never the object, strictly speaking, that is beautiful. It is the encounter which takes place about the object between a real aspect of the world and a human gesture. 
Hence, it is possible for there to be no aesthetic object defined as aesthetic without nevertheless excluding the aesthetic feeling. The aesthetic object is in fact a mixture. It calls upon a certain human gesture and furthermore contains an element of reality that, in order to satisfy this gesture and correspond to it, becomes the basis of this gesture, to which this gesture applies itself and in which it accomplishes itself. An aesthetic object that would be nothing more than objectively complementary relations would be nothing. Lines would fail to be harmonious if they were not pure relations. A separate objectivity of number and measure does not constitute beauty. A perfect circle is not beautiful insofar as it is a circle, but a certain curve can be beautiful even if it might be very difficult to find its mathematical formula. A line etching representing a temple with very precise proportions merely re relays an impression of boredom and stiffness, but the temple itself, worn by time and half crumbled, is more beautiful than the impeccable model of its erudite res restoration. For the aesthetic object is not strictly speaking an object. It, also, it is also partially the, the depository of a certain number of appeal aspects, which are, subject, uh, which are subject reality, gesture, waiting for the object of reality in which this gesture can exert and fulfill itself. The aesthetic object is both object and subject. It awaits the subject in order to put it into motion and solicit in it perception on the one hand and participation on the other. Participation consists of gestures and reception, uh, sorry, perception gives these gestures a basis in objective reality. In the perfect model with its exact lines, indeed one finds all the objective elements represented, figuré, but there is no longer this echoing or appealing that gives objects the power to give rise to living gestures. Indeed, it is not the geometric proportions of the temple that give it this aspect of an appeal, but the fact that it exists in the world as a mass of stones, of coolness, darkness, and stability, which inflect our powers of effort or desire, our fear or our elan in a primary and pre-perceptive way. The qualitative load that is integrated in the world is what turns this block of stones into a stimulant, matter for our tendencies, rather than any geometric element that interests our perception. What remains on the sheet of paper where the reconstruction is drawn is nothing more than a, a geometric characters. They are cold and meaningless because the arousal of tendencies has not been provoked before they are perceived. The work of art is aesthetic only to the extent that these geometric characteristics, these limits, receive and fix the qualitative flow. It is hardly useful to speak of magic to define this qualitative existence. It is biological as well as magical. It concerns the spontaneity of our tropisms, our primitive existence in the world before perception as a being that does not yet grasp the objects but directions, as going upwards and or downwards, towards darkness and towards light. In this sense, the aesthetic object is ill-named insofar as it evokes our tendencies. The object is an object only for perception when it is grasped as a localized hiket nunc. But it cannot be considered as an object in itself and prior to perception. Aesthetic reality is pre-objective in the sense that one can say that the world is above all an object. The aesthetic object is an object at the end of a genesis that confers stability upon it and cuts it out. Before this genesis, there is a reality that is not yet objective, even though it is not subjective. It is a certain way of being in the world for the living thing, comprising the appeal, directions, tropisms, in the strict sense of the word. Jesus. Yeah, so that was a very long paragraph, um, which again has a lot in it. So maybe we can go through it um, in order again, um, uh, just going through sort of as it as it progresses. Um, it's also maybe worth mentioning that this type of paragraph is, I think, very characteristic of his style, um, 
this sort of sequence of, of clauses with semicolons that sort of progressively develops um, uh, is uh, a, an instance of what he describes as transductive thought. So it's uh, it's uh, the thought sort of develops itself progressively over the course of a long paragraph um, and a series of semicolon clauses. Um, uh, so yeah, this this stylistic um, characteristic of his work is uh, uh, reflective of the the mode of thought that he's um, arguing for as well. So the first bit here is um, he he distinguishes between what he calls an absolute uh, complete and absolute work, um, uh, and then the the aesthetic work, which is not complete and absolute. So um, the beauty of uh, an aesthetic object has to do with its placement in a world um, rather than being uh, sort of uh, self-sustaining. Um, so it's not the statue that makes a garden beautiful. It's a, a beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful garden that makes uh, the statue in it um, have a, a, a sense of beauty. Um, uh, so, yeah, so the, the and, and as he puts it, it's not the object, strictly speaking, that is beautiful. It is the encounter which takes place about the object between a real aspect of the world and a human gesture. Um, so it's, um, it's not this... Um, it's not the object uh, considered as a, a sort of self-sustaining self, uh, and, and uh, self-enclosed uh, sort of entity, which is beautiful. It's the object placed in an environment um, and then um, encountered by a human being uh, that, that is beautiful. And so he develops further this idea of the gesture, um, which I think has to do with um, tropisms, as he describes it there. So this is a tropism is a term borrowed from animal psychology. Um, so um, it, it characterizes the behavior of certain animals with uh, relatively simple behavior, where they, for example, um, or not just animals, uh, but uh, bacteria as well. So they, they will, for example, um, either flee the light and, and head towards darkness, or they will uh, head towards the light. Um, um, so the, the world of that animal or that, that living being is just structured by a polarity of light and darkness. So they, they head towards light or, or, or away from light. Um, but that, that uh, polarity of light and darkness is the, the sort of fundamental structure of their, their world that they behave in. And so a tropism is just a directedness, um, to some property of the environment. Um, so you can have phototropism, so related to light. Um, you can have, um, uh, I don't know, chemotropism. I'm not sure if that's the word that is used, but you can have um, tropisms related to a, a gradient of, um, of the, the chemicals in a, a solution. So the you know uh, uh, bacteria will um, swim up the gradient towards the, the higher concentration of, of sugar in the water, for example, or something like that. Um, um, yeah, so you can have different tropisms based on different polarities within the environment. And uh, so this is, he characterizes this, um, this um, polarization of the environment and um, this relationship to this uh, polarization as a, a gesture. So um, in a work of art, we are always um, related to it in this, uh, in this tropistic way. Um, so we we recognize the dark and the light or the, the 
different aspects of the work um, uh, through um, through this tropistic um, uh, behavior that the, the work um, elicits in us. Yeah, super cool. Right, and, and Liz Mason just posted in the chat um, uh, a link about uh, tropism in plants, which again, um, they can respond to light or, or gravity um, and other and chemical um, concentrations of chemicals in the soil um, or et cetera. So um, we don't, we usually tend to think of plants as having behavior, but they do um, respond to their environment in adaptive ways, which is basically what we can describe as behavior. And so it's this um, this aspect of the gesture and the tropism that that makes it um, uh, that makes the work of art more than just um, a sort of a uh, pure harmony of forms. Uh, so as he describes it, um, a drawing of a temple in its sort of uh, perfection and, and geometrical um, yeah geometrical perfection and and completion is not necessarily beautiful. Um, compared to the real temple, um, which may be um, partly ruined, um, you know, maybe parts of it have, uh, have fallen down or, or whatever, but um, by it, it's um, in the fact that it's structured in relation to human behavior and that human gesture, um, when, you know, there's aspects, there are areas of the temple that will be shaded and cool and other areas that will be, you know, in the bright sunlight. Um, so uh, that relationship to the human gesture um, is what makes uh, the temple beautiful rather than just the pure um, geometrical form of the temple. And then uh, another aspect of the gesture, gesture, um, or another consequence of the the gestural um, character of uh, the aesthetic object is that the, the aesthetic object is not um, strictly speaking strictly speaking an object, uh, or is not purely object. It has um, an objective aspect to it, but it also has this subjective aspect to it. So. Um, it's uh, it requires the subject to, uh, as he put it, to, to put it into motion and solicit it in perception. Um, so it's it's only through the the capacities that a subject has to uh, respond to um, to different properties of the environment and and different polarities uh, in that tropistic way. It's only because of those capacities that an aesthetic object is aesthetic. Um, so it's it's always the encounter of that object with uh, a human um with with those uh tropistic capacities that produces beauty it's not the object itself that um that has uh beauty uh considered in isolation uh, there's an interesting question i think uh, it's not certain uh to what extent beholders share as it is called uh, should have the final word in determining the aesthetic feeling. One more time. Right, there's um, 
I guess you, you can, you can, um, so there is a certain subjectivity in, in what he's describing here, this tropism, um, uh, um, as eliciting an aspect of the, the work of art or the, the aesthetic object. Uh, so there is a subjectivity in the sense that, um, these tropisms will differ from one, uh, subject to the next. Uh, so not everyone responds in the same way to light and darkness or to, uh, to color and, and, and form and so on. Um, but I think, I think what he would want to say is that this, uh, the work of art relies on, um, sort of fundamental biological capacities, um, to respond to tropisms rather than, um, more, uh, I guess you could say cultivated, um, um, capacities. Um, so, um, so again, the more cultivated capacities would be something on, on the lines of, uh, linguistic, um, or cultural, um, uh, standards of a work of art. Whereas what he wants to point to here as being the, the more fundamental structure is the, uh, the sort of basic biological capacities to respond to light and darkness or, or movement or, or shape and so on. Um, and so these are, are sort of pre-human capacities that are, um, uh, part of what that are elicited by the work of art. So I think, I think he would, um, take them as being, uh, not, um, subjective in the sense of being particular to an individual subject, but, uh, um, universal in that sense. And this, uh, this aspect of the work of art, I think uh, we can also make connections to um, um, ecological psychology um, and the concept of, uh, of affordances. Um, and um, um, so it, it has to do with, so the, the aspects that are, um, that make a work of art or, or an aesthetic object, the aspects that make an aesthetic object um, aesthetic um, are, are not just sort of purely contemplative, uh, aspects and not, they're not just, um, geometrical properties of the aesthetic object, but they're properties that elicit, um, a gesture or an action on the part of the human being. Um, and so the question in the chat here is, um, when I, about my characterization of, uh, of these capacities as pre-human. So, uh, does that mean that animals respond to textures as, as humans do? Um, uh, I, I don't think it would necessarily mean that, uh, and of course there'd be variation between different animals, um, in terms of what types of, uh, response they, they, um, they have to different textures or, or other properties of aesthetic objects. Um, but, um, what I was getting at is that, um, um, there are these sort of fundamental structuring properties of environments in which animals, uh, live and, uh, and, you know, behave and, and move around and so on. Um, so, uh, these properties of, of light and darkness or, or, uh, temperature, um, um, 
uh, you know, the presence of different uh, chemicals, um, which we can detect through smell or taste. Um, those properties are, are aspects of the environment that um, they don't depend on human beings, but, but human behavior is, um, is uh, responsive to those um, uh, aspects of the environment. So textures would be one um, uh, sort of pre-human uh, um, aspect of the environment that human beings can respond to through behavior. Um, um, and then you know, other animals might have different responses to some of those textures, but the, the textures themselves are, are, um, are not dependent on human beings um, um, for their existence. Right. So um, the question again is: um, so uh, it is uh, is humans responding to textures uh, pre-human? Um, so an example would be uh, seeing paint coming off the painting. Um, is that non-linguistic or something like that? Um, so I would say, or I think what Simon Don would um, is is arguing here is that the the sort of fundamental. Um, capacity to appreciate uh, a painting or a work of art in general has to do with um, um, having these pre-human or, or um, uh, these tropistic relationships to aspects of an environment. So um, uh, it's only because we, ha we can, um, it's only because we can uh, orient ourselves towards light and darkness, for example, that we can um, respond to the the texture of a painting and seeing you know the paints rising above the surface and and uh, and um, and have an appreciation for that texture. Uh, so the the fundamental um, relationship to that texture is through the the um, this um, capacity to respond to light and darkness, uh, for example, rather than. Um, a sort of intellectual capacity to appreciate forms uh, in three dimensions or something like that. Um, so it's through that um, gestural relationship to reality, to uh, external uh, entities that we, um, that's the sort of fundamental way of seeing uh, or of, uh, of grasping an aesthetic object. And then, so something like a linguistic appreciation or um, 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 uh, something like a, a linguistic or a cultural appreciation of a, an aesthetic object would be a, a more derived um, capacity, which would be developed through, you know, training in a certain um, intellectual, artistic context, and so on. Um, so there, are, you know, like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, medieval or Renaissance paintings have a sort of a, a code where different objects represent um, different. Um, uh, like it might represent that the the person in the portrait um, is a, a powerful person or something like that. Um, um, so some of these things are are derived capacities that you have to be trained in a certain um, tradition to to be able to appreciate. But the more fundamental um, uh, capacity to appreciate aesthetic objects has to do with these tropisms. Um, um, yeah. So then, another question is, uh, um, where does the painter's gesture come in uh, from Simon Don's point of view? Um, 
Yeah, that's an interesting question um, because um, so far what we've seen has to do with the um, reception of a work of art uh, or an aesthetic object uh, rather than the creation of the aesthetic object. Um, so I think um, if I would hazard a guess, um, I think that there would be an, an analogical relationship between the uh, the painter's gesture and the uh, the gesture um, that is elicited by the painting in the person who sees it. Um, so, um, so he described he mentions here like the uh, um, a curve you, you, in a painting or a statue or whatever it is. Uh, this curve that might um, it can be beautiful even though its geometrical properties might be, not be. Um, it might not be a simple curve, like a, a circle or an ellipse or something like that. Um, so um, the same gesture, or the painter makes a gesture um, to produce that curve. And then um, you, as the viewer who sees the, the painting, um, you're, you're, uh, the painting elicits a similar gesture or a similar curve um, in, say, the movement of your eyes across the painting. Or um, there might be a, a sort of... Um, uh, a, a tendency, which of course you're not going to realize, but a tendency to move your hand in the same uh, in the same gesture um, as to produce the painting. So there would be an analogical relationship in that um, the the gesture that the painting elicits in the viewer it has a the same structure as the gesture that produced the the painting in the first place. That would be my um, my guess as towards what Simon Don would say about that, but I'm not sure if. Uh, it's possible that he might discuss that later on in the text. I don't remember. Yes, I, I um, started describing um, the concept of affordances, but then I uh, sort of went on a different track. Um, but uh, I think this is related to what he's um, describing here. Is, uh, so affordances in ecological psychology are um, properties of objects in relation to um, uh, potential actions. So... Um, like a chair has the property of being uh, something you can sit on um, or a surface has the property of being something you can walk on or, or so on. Um, so these are affordances and uh, ecological psychology, um, you know, the work of, of James Gibson uh, um, argues that uh, perception is fundamentally structured by these affordances. So what we fundamentally perceive are not um objective properties of objects, but affordances um, in, in um, you know, what, what the objects offer towards action. Um, and I think this is a similar, um, uh, similar concept to what Simon Don is developing here. Um, and so he's arguing that our fundamental um, appreciation of aesthetic objects is not through uh, sort of a pure contemplation or a, a passive perception, but um, through our relationship a uh, relationship between the the object and a, a gesture that it elicits or that it, it, it could elicit. Um, so in this potential gesture is um, is the fundamental relationship of, uh, of receiving an aesthetic object rather than um, a purely passive reception.
Oh, so Berke had to leave, um, so that's okay. Um, I think we can continue for a little bit and then maybe end a little bit early today uh, because I have another group right after this one. So I, I'd like to uh, have a little bit of time to get something to eat in between. Um, yeah, so the the next bit in that long paragraph um, is um, has to do with uh, the relationship between this... Uh, um, this uh, tropistic appreciation of the aesthetic work and um, um, perception. Um, so there's um, there's this uh, um, yeah. So perception, as Simon was using the, the term here, perception is a, a passive reception of the the figural properties of an object or, or geometrical properties of an object. Um, but he uh, he's characterizing the uh, aesthetic, the um, relationship to an aesthetic work as pre-perceptive. Um, and so uh, this tropistic relationship is, is pre-perceptive um, in that sense because it's related to action, whereas perception is uh, a purely um, contemplative uh, uh, reception of uh, the properties of the object, um, as, as Simon knows using the term here. Okay, so I think we can continue to the next paragraph then, if uh, someone else would like to read. So we're at um, real aesthetic feeling. Okay, uh, I can read. Uh, real aesthetic feeling cannot be enslaved to an object. The construction of an aesthetic object is nothing more than a necessarily vain effort to recover the magic that has been forgotten. The true aesthetic function cannot be magical. It can only functionally be a memory and a reenacting of magic. It is a magic going backward, a magic in reverse, whereas the initial magic is that through which the universe reticulates into singular points and singular moments, art is that through which a new reticulation emerges from out of science, morals, mysticism, and ritual, and as a consequence of this new reticulation, there is the emergence of a real universe, in which the effort, which had been separated from itself, and which arose from the internal disjunction that technics and religion underwent, comes to completion, and as a consequence of these two expressions of magic, the initial effort of the structuration of the universe. Art reconstitutes the universe, or rather reconstitutes a universe, whereas magic starts from a universe in order to establish an already differentiated structure that carves the universe into domains charged with sense and power. Art aims at a universe on the basis of human effort and reconstitutes a unity. Art is thus the counterpart of magic, but it cannot entirely be this counterpart until after the two successive disjunctions. Poof. Right, so here we have the, um, the dis distinction between the magical mode of existence and the aesthetic mode of existence. So in one sense, the, uh, the aesthetic mode of existence repeats the magical mode of existence or, or returns to that um, that unity that was characteristic of the magical mode of existence, but it also, um, it doesn't just re repeat the, the magical mode of existence. So it, it 
it's fundamentally secondary to the that split into technical and religious. Um, so it it um, the difference has to do with the uh, you could say the direction of the the uh, mode of thinking. So whereas in the magical mode of existence, the unity is presupposed, um, and then um, uh, you know, the the split arises out of it in the aesthetic mode of existence the split is presupposed the split into uh, figure and ground or, or subject and object is already presupposed and then the aesthetic um, uh, mode of thinking works to reunite those split aspects um, so there's a difference in direction uh, of the way that the the mode of thought works uh, between magic and aesthetics mm. Is the technical object going to come back in here? Uh, we do see more about the technical object later on. Uh, I think it might be the next section um, um, in relationship to science. Uh, we haven't seen that that relationship yet, which is another part of that um, um, uh, genesis that is in the graph there. Um, so we'll see more about the technical object in relation to science. Um, but I'm not sure uh, if there's any more um, in relation to art. I'm not, I can't remember for sure. Okay. Yeah, this is a long section. We still have uh, another six pages um, in this section. Um, so we're not going to finish it today, but maybe the next time we'll finish it. Um, maybe we'll read one more paragraph and then we can end it for today. Um, so uh, I can read the, the next paragraph. There are two partial forms of art, sacred art and profane art. Art can intervene as a mediator between the mystical attitude and the ritual attitude. This art is like the act of a priest without being what constitutes a priest. It rediscovers something of the mediator that has disappeared within the breaking apart that led to the appearance of the mystical attitude and the ritualistic attitude in place of religion. Sacred art is at once gesture and reality, object and subject, because it is at once the aesthetic attitude and the work. Work can exist only as something that is played. It, it comes from inspiration. Art is made of artistic activity and of the objectivized, actualized work. In this sense, there is mediation because there is celebration. Uh, I'll just continue in the next short paragraph as well. In the same way, profane art installs its object, namely the result of the artistic work between theoretical knowledge and moral exigency. The beautiful is an intermediary between the true and the good, if one wishes to return to eclectic terminology. Like the tool, the aesthetic object is an intermediary between objective structures and the subjective world. It is the mediator between knowledge and will. The aesthetic object concentrates and expresses aspects of both knowledge and will. Aesthetic expression and creation are at once knowledge and act. The aesthetic, uh, the aesthetic act comes to fulfillment, like knowledge, within itself, but aesthetic knowledge is mythical. It harbors a power of action. The aesthetic object is the result of an operation that is intermediary between knowledge and action. So here he introduces the distinction between sacred art and profane art. Um, 
so sacred art it would be art that has to do with uh, the religious mode of existence um and then profane art um i suppose would have to do with the technical mode of existence um so these are the sort of two sides of art in relation to the two um modes of existence that precede art um or precede, precede the aesthetic um so in the sacred uh in sacred art um it intervenes within religion uh and uh it mediates between the mystical attitude and the ritual attitude so um the religious mode of existence would have these two aspects this r ritual aspect and mystical aspect and then the, the sacred uh art work or uh, sacred art would um mediate between those two aspects um um Right. So we haven't really seen that split within religion in, into the mystical attitude and the ritual attitude. Um, he just sort of um, introduces it here without uh, really explaining it. Um, but it looks like, um, yeah, so it looks like there's a similar type of split uh, of the religious mode of existence into the, the, myth, the mystical and the, the ritualistic um, um, in the same way that the magical mode of existence splits into the technical and the, the religious. Mm. Now, is he splitting them um, in, in such a way that he's going to go and uh, it sounds like he may have done this before, but contribute a lot of attribution or attributes to the splitting um, and he's splitting them for a reason, uh, some sort of differentiation, right? I mean, it sounds like they might have. He's going to set out to talk about the various, the different attributes of these separations. Um, yeah, so with this split um, doesn't seem to be as fully fleshed out as the previous one. Um, so the split into um, technical and religious mode of existence, he definitely does... Um, uh, sort of explain the different attributes of those two modes of existence, um, you know, as the, the figure and ground or, or the uh, subject and object sides of the, of the split. Um, but this split, he doesn't really explain what it consists in. Uh, he just sort of, um, I guess, presupposes that we know what a mystical attitude and a ritualistic attitude would mean. He doesn't really explain that for us. Um, I, I can't remember if he develops that in more detail in the rest of the the section that we haven't read yet. Um, but um, um, so far, from what we see now, he hasn't um, explained what that split consists in. And so what about this intermediary, though? He says the aesthetic object, was it, that's an intermediary between... Um, if I recall correctly, the prof I don't have the text in front of me, uh, the profane and the sacred. Well, the aesthetic object is just a mediator. Uh, so it's not it's not the profane and the sacred that it mediates between. It's um, the, so the profane and the sacred are are two forms of art. Uh, he describes as partial forms of art, um, and then the sacred 
form of art would would act as a mediator between uh, the mystical attitude uh, and the um, ritualistic attitude within religion. So um, if we think of that, that diagram again, uh, religion would be split into a mystical attitude and a ritual attitude, a ritualistic attitude. Um, and then uh, the sacred uh, sacred art would be the mediator between those two um, um, forms of religion or two attitudes within religion. Uh, so yeah, um, that's that's the role that um, this uh, partial form of art is playing. The sacred uh, sacred art is playing that mediating role. And then on the other side, um, we have um, profane art, which um, um, mediates between theoretical knowledge and moral exigency. Um, so as he puts it, the beautiful is an intermediary between the true and the good. Um, so um, I guess this would have to do with um, the creation of uh, an aesthetic object as um, um, uh, so profane, profane art here, meaning art that is not sacred. Um, so I, I guess we can think of, for example, um, Renaissance painting introduces the art of perspective, which is, uh, you know, a sort of geometrical um, uh, uh, construction of a painting. Uh, so it, it sort of builds on a theoretical knowledge of perspective and, uh, you know, the geometrical um, properties of uh, linear perspective. Um and then um, I'm not really clear on what exactly moral exigency has to do with uh, with this here, um, but um, presumably um, there's some um, moral aspect of the work of art as well, uh, or sort of more moral aspect that is um, united with the, the theoretical aspect in the work of art. Um, but I'm not really clear on on how that is supposed to work. Possibly, um, this is just a guess, but um, this possibly has to do with um, the the gestural character of the uh, of the work of art that we saw in the previous paragraph. Um, so, insofar as a work of art elicits an action from the uh, the the viewer or the the audience, um, um, yeah. So, uh, insofar as it as it requires that. Um, um, uh, gesture or action from the the audience, um, there would be a, a certain uh, moral character as a, or normative character to that um, work of art, uh, given that the action is structured by norms of some kind. That's my guess. I mean, that makes sense to me. I, my, I was thinking in terms of how my earlier question about the technical object was kind of about, well, what about things like uh, modernist art, which are, which are often sort of, you know, um, 
lots of geometry and very diagrammatic and very sort of abstract and sort of resembling diagrams of a technical object in certain in certain examples and sort of how that might be a, a, a profanation or something like that or that it would be that it would that it would sort of encounter um, like there would be some moral judgments that would be ascribed to it when it first sort of came on the scene in terms of challenging people's perceptions or something. Yeah, sorry, I, I missed a, a part of that. Um, um, but um, I think you were talking about modernist art and uh, how it relates to a technical object. Yeah, um, I, I was just saying that I, I only got part of what you said because it, it sort of froze. I guess that was probably when it crashed on your side. Um, so you were talking about um, the the way that the technical or modernist art and its relation to the technical object. Right, and just that it might be that it might be understood as a kind of profanation or something like that. That it might be, you know, an, a, a kind of um, like that. That the moral agents see that the kind of re the reaction to the gesture would be one that would be uh, where people would find it immoral or something like that, or they would find it against. I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling for words here, but just that they would they would find it against a sort of dominant aesthetic or something like that in a way that would that would possess this kind of uh, moralizing around it or something. Yeah, that's uh, another possibility that I hadn't thought of. Um, so uh, I guess you think of um, the sort of reaction that uh, like cubism, for example, or, or other forms of non-representational art um, elicited at, at the time they were introduced where people had this reaction of, of horror and uh, they caused a sort of scandal. Um, um, and uh, like I know in Nazi Germany, there were like exhibits of what they called degenerate art of uh, you know different forms of uh non-representative art uh, like uh, Paul Klee and, and Kandinsky, I think, and, and people like that were exhibited um, as, as, you know, degenerate art. Um, uh, so this type of moralizing attitude toward the artistic work, um, um, yeah, as something that is a, a profanation of uh, something that should be sacred, um, I think that could be part of what he's getting at here as well. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's great. You, you get what I'm saying, for sure, with the example that you just gave, for sure. I think we should uh, call this to an end, maybe. Eh? It's just the time yeah. left. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. Um, that will give me uh, some time to eat something before the next group starts. Um, um, so do you know if you got the recording or not? I think it's I think it's been working, yeah. So I'll save it out and uh, and reduce it down to an MP3 or something, and I'll hand it over to 61 to, to put up on YouTube. I'll put it on Google Drive somewhere. Yeah, that would be great. Um, yeah, thanks for doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully that will be able, we'll be able to do that in future um, and keep the recordings going. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, thanks a lot for everything again, Nun. We'll uh, have a good uh, second session. Yeah, thanks. See you. Bye.